0: Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and I'm joining you today from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boonarong Boon Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. I've just jumped on quickly before we get to our interview today with Professor Emeritus Lindy McAllister to acknowledge the huge honour that was bestowed on Lindy earlier this week. On Monday, Lindy was acknowledged on the King's Honours Awards for her outstanding contribution to our field and to our community. We'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge and congratulate her. Hello and welcome. This is Nadia from Speak Up and I'm joining you today from the Wondery Country. I'm very excited about our conversation today, as this is our first in a new series of conversation with life members of Speech Pathology Australia. I don't want to do too much introduction, partly because I'm sure our listeners want to hear it from you, Lindy, rather than from me. But amateurist Professor Lindy McAllister has published five books internationally, more than seventy peer-reviewed journals, on articles, thirty book chapters, fourteen peer-reviewed conference proceedings. You've been busy. (laughs) I have. Thank you so much for making time to join us today. Thank you, Nadia. And
1: I'm speaking today from the lands of the Yagara and Terrible people in Brisbane.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So let's start out with a very broad uh, topic to start with. What attracted you to speech pathology as a profession?
1: So it was actually my default choice. I intended to do medicine, but in the early 70s. Uh, most students from my type of family background went to university on a Commonwealth scholarship. And if you failed the end of year exams, you had to repeat the whole year and you lost your scholarship for that year. So physics and maths, which were part of the first year curriculum for medicine, were my strong points. And I decided I couldn't risk losing a Commonwealth scholarship. So I very quickly swapped into speech therapy because my guidance officer had spent three years telling me what a wonderful course it was for girls to do. Oh, dear. (laughs) Um, Which made me resolve not to do it. Yes. (laughs) Um, In fact, it was a brilliant piece of advice as I look back over my career because it's allowed me to continually um, do different things and add to my skill sets and my interests, and it's something I've always been passionate about. Um, Yeah, so it was a really good default choice.
0: It served you well as time's gone by. (laughs) Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what's kept you interested in speech pathology over the years?
1: Um, I started work as a clinician. Or the Queensland Department of Education, and in my first year, got set up two brand new speech therapy clinics. This is in the in 1975, so it was a huge growth phase for the profession in Queensland. Um, and then I asked for a transfer to Cairns because I thought I could. Do with the challenge and (laughs) live in the tropics, and (laughs) and so I did. Well, it's the endless opportunities. Yeah. So when I was a clinician, being able to take on huge challenges of setting up clinics and services that have never in areas that have never had them before, um, to do higher degrees. Mm Very new. I had to go to the United States to do my master's degree. It wasn't an option in Australia. And I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to do that. And then um, moving into academia and endless opportunities for teaching, which I love, for research, which I love. Um, for administration and leadership work, which I've discovered I also love. (laughs) (laughs) And mentoring young academics, Mm -hmm. you know, has given me enormous satisfaction over the decades. So I think it's that opportunity to keep doing different things to expand your skill
0: set and really your professional identity. Mm, Definitely. I imagine some of those have been career highlights. Are there any others that jump out at you?
1: Yes, um, I would say there are four. Um, going to Cairns was uh, a wonderful experience. It, any sensible young speech therapist, as we were then called, would have been daunted, <laughs> was um, foolish enough not to be daunted. So the thought of setting up um a speech therapy service for the schools in the whole of Far North Queensland. Wow. That is a challenge. Um, And, you know, it was successful. I had a really good boss, the district guidance officer, supporting me and um, offering me good advice and reining me in when needed. (laughs) But, you know, in the five years that I was there, we grew from one, which was me, to six. Wow. Wow therapists in the education department, servicing far north Queensland, um, Cairns, Innisfail, Mossman and the Atherton Tablelands. And I think that's where I developed my skills in teaching. I did an enormous amount of training teachers, educating teachers about what we did and how to work in in the classroom with kids with speech and language needs. Um, So that was a highlight. I loved it. Um, I went to Charles Sturt University as the first head of the program there to set up the program. That was Australia's first rural speech pathology degree program. And, again, building something out of nothing um, was enormously satisfying for me. And, you know, adding to the staffing and getting the PhD students enrolled and getting rural speech pathology research started um, was challenging but fun, a good collaborative team effort, working with a great team. Um, so that is something I'm very proud of. Um, I think if I look back, um, the thing I'm probably most proud of is the work that I've been involved in in Vietnam for 20, coming up 23 years. So while I was at Charles State University, we started taking speech pathology, occupational therapy, and physiotherapy students to Vietnam on placements. That led to requests for training. And that led to Sue Woodward and myself establishing Trin Foundation Australia to support hospitals and universities that wanted short course training in speech and language therapy. That led to running um, whole of scope of practice, one and two year training programs. And that eventually led to the big five year grant from US Agency for International Development, which enabled us with our Vietnamese partner, Medical Committee of Netherlands, Vietnam, to develop and roll out a bachelor degree and a master's degree. And those pilot degrees are now the templates being used by Vietnam to roll out more bachelor degrees across the country and another master's degree. And so Vietnam is, you know, running degree level education, building its workforce, getting started on research research to build their evidence base.
0: Wow, Um, that's amazing. That's amazing. It is amazing. It is, and And you know, that's
1: been possible with a huge number of mostly Australian speech pathologists teaching and supervising and supervising research theses, but also clinicians from the UK, Canada, New Zealand, US. It's been a huge international collaboration And it's worked really well, and I am enormously proud of it. And I'm still involved. I'm trying not to do as much teaching as I once did, but I am mentoring those master's graduates to take on the teaching and research. So that sort of capacity building, which is what we were always about. Wonderful. Yeah. So I've just thought of another highlight, Mm -hmm. my career, and that is being National President of Speech Pathology Australia in 2003 and 2004. Um, I think that's always a fabulous thing to do, um, to be able to have that level of leadership of your own profession and, and the influence that that brings and all the changes that you implement um, as chair of the board. That's that's exciting. But I think if I had to name one thing that sticks with me about those two years I had as national president, it would be the extensive reaching out work we did to other professional associations around the world, including um, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So- Long-standing relationships, of course, with the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists and with um, ASHA sure. in the United States. Um, but we, you know, we were reaching out to the small, the smaller or, or professional associations like the one in New Zealand and Ireland and Canada. We'd had a good relationship with Canada because of the mutual recognition agreement. Um, But we also reached out into Southeast Asia. And I think that was the first time we'd ever had dialogue with them. Um, And I think that was the start of a a much more global view of where we sit in the profession globally and what we can offer to other smaller associations, but also what we can learn from them. So that's something... I'm really proud of. And, of course, you'll hear again that global theme mm. to um, find a way of wanting to have a global impact everywhere in all my roles. <laughs> global. I mean, impact. there were many highlights as national president, but that
0: was one of them,
1: yeah.
0: Global impact and a focus on collaboration seem to be very front and centre. to Ooh. what
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely,
0: yeah. I'm thinking a little bit about some of the changes that have happened in the time that you've been a speech pathologist, and I I, know, I mean I know even in the time that I've been a speech pathologist, lots of things have changed. We do things very differently. Mm. There are equipment that we don't use anymore. Can you tell us a little bit about mm. some things that you did maybe earlier in your career that um, has changed, or just some of the reflections that you've had over the years as well?
1: Look, I think the biggest changes. Uh, the um, for me as a pediatric clinician was the development of a knowledge base about our language development, um, the inclusion of swallowing in the curriculum and in our scope of practice, and the development of evidence based practice and an evidence base to draw on. So when I graduated in 1974. We had linguistics in our degree, but it wasn't clear to me how we were going to apply that in practice mm-hmm. for children with language disorders. But by the time I started my master's in 1978, a lot of the foundational work around child language development had been done in those intervening through three or five years, And there were speech pathologists writing about how to apply that to assessment and intervention with children. So that was the most exciting thing about my master's degree was getting that state-of-the-art knowledge and skills on working with children with language disorder and being able to bring that back and implement it clinically, but also to teach it when I began to lecture at the University of Queensland in 1981, that was, you know, there was still so much coming out and that was a joy to teach because I felt for the first time that we could actually be really targeted mm-hmm. with with language disorders and impair, impairment and disorder. So that was um, a huge change. And then in the um, 1990s, when we began to include, well, CBOSS was developed, which which and part of our scope of practice became swallowing, and universities in Australia very quickly had to build in um, the curricula around swallowing. So if they weren't already doing it, they had to do it and really expand what they were doing. So. Um, I never had that in my undergraduate curriculum or in my master's um, degree. So it's not an area in which I'm particularly confident, but it's had a profound impact on our scope of practice. So that's a huge change. And then evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. So being an evidence-based profession and having an ever Growing evidence base to draw on and having the research skills to know how to draw on the evidence and critique it and synthesize it has been huge. So, I think those are the three things, lots of others as well, but those would be the three biggies for me,
0: particularly as an academic responsible yeah. for curriculum development. Absolutely. Um, what about some of the challenges that you faced?
1: Oh, when I began working, um, pathology in Australia was very much an individual client model mm. and medical model of practice. So, trying to manage a huge caseload, I think about well, Cairns in particular, but also working in Brisbane, huge numbers of children in my caseload in need, but You're never going to be able to provide for them all on a one-to-one withdrawal model. So changes in service delivery models around um, home programming, parent education, group intervention, um, the health promotion models, primary health care that we now use. I think um, I'm so grateful that that has come along because... Trying to service huge caseloads was my biggest challenge as a clinician. Um, and then being confident in what I was doing. That's why evidence-based practices are godsend. And I think <laughs> about my work in Vietnam, I think the cultural challenges, and that's got application here too because you're working with people who's, who come from a very different culture to you speak a different language, you're reliant on interpreters, you have to build your own cultural capacity, your cultural awareness, your sensitivity and the capacity to work with um, service users who are not English speakers and don't come from an Australian culture. So that has really been good for my professional development. Um, I've learned a lot that I could have applied to working with migrant and Indigenous communities in Australia when I was a clinician in the 70s. Yeah, so that, those, I'd say, have been my biggest challenges.
0: Hmm. Very fair enough. Um, were you ever tempted to leave the field for something different?
1: No. No. Oh. no. no, once I was in, I was in, and because I could keep reinventing myself, um, as a clinician and then um, a lecturer and then a researcher and then a university leader, I didn't feel any need to leave the profession.
0: No. Yeah, very good. So looking forward, what are some things that you're excited about? What are some things that that give you hope about the fact that we're moving in a direction that feels like it's in line with, with your values and the values of the profession?
1: I think um, as a profession, we finally are coming to grips with um, what it means to actually implement the international classification of functioning. So working uh, beyond the medical model and um, actually working at a functional level,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, hand in hand with um, Moving beyond that focus on the individual to universal provision, I think that's hugely exciting. I don't think we need to lose focus of impairment-level work, but I think if we want to be seen as having a place in the broader society, we need to ha- have a much greater visibility and I think that's comes from working at functional level and universal provision level. So that's exciting. Um, One of my passions has been equity for people globally, people with communications following disability, equity for them. So you would have heard the passion in my voice talking about Vietnam. I work in Vietnam. I've worked in other um, majority world countries as well. So to see um, majority war countries like Vietnam, countries in Africa, getting their degrees up and running and their workforce development up and running is really satisfying for me. That will be a passion, I think, till the day I die. Um, And just for me personally, I... I should say I'm excited about enjoying retirement, but I find it really hard to stop working um, as an academic and a researcher, and I'm still very involved in, in that, particularly in Vietnam, but I've also still got some PhD students, so still publishing, and I'm excited about mentoring the next generation of academics in Australia and in Vietnam. Um, That's something that I would like to be able to continue to do for quite a few years yet. Um, But I am starting to get the hang of retirement and having fun and travelling again after COVID and going to um, places that you really can't go to while you're working because they take a lot of time and effort to get there. So, um, and having time to... Pick up new interests, but also return to old interests that I had and had to let go of a bit to keep working 60 hour weeks when I was a university um, leader. So that that's kind of nice. That excites me that I've still I've got a new life or an old life back together with new life. And, and it that sounds
0: is, like it's a bit more balanced than it was at some points yeah, as well. I've got balance. Yeah, the bits that you love and then still the things that are enjoyable in your, like, regular life as well. Yeah, that's right. That is great. Um, I've only got one more question for you today, um, and that is, do you have any advice for other speech pathologists who are listening today or for us as a community in a field?
1: I think for other speech pathologists, um, my advice would be, to put your hand up for things outside your normal scope and probably outside your confidence level. Um, no 21-year-old in, in their right mind would have put their hand up to be the first speech therapist in Cairns, <laughs> take on the whole of Far North Queensland. But I did and I managed and I loved it and it opened up so many other doors um, down the track. So. Take risks, um, trust yourself and your skill set, volunteer, and don't expect the satisfying personal growth parts of your work, of your professional activity, to fit in a 38-hour week. (laughs) So some of what we do that is enormously enriching and rewarding isn't part of our routine work but they're probably the things that have given me most satisfaction over the decades so yeah put your hand
0: up take risks volunteer it sounds like generally good life advice anyway <laughs> I think it is
1: it's more than 50 years since I started my degree wow my degree so it's wonderful looking back at how the profession's grown in knowledge base, its standing within the community, the respect that we command, um, the sheer volume of, of us. Mm. Unbelievable, mm. really. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a wonderful journey to have been on and to be part of, and also to have influenced. Mm. I think that's a pretty special career, us, yes, really,
0: for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. It's been, it's been really lovely hearing about your journey and the things that you've learned. And I'm sure that for our listeners, they're going to take a lot away and a lot of inspiration away from, from hearing you talk today. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you for asking me, Nadia. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: And thanks to everybody who's listening and make sure you tune in next time for our next conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.